Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Future of Health with Providence St. Joseph Health. I'm your host, Julie Alexandria, bringing you the very latest in healthcare trends and news each week. And today, we are so grateful to be joined by Dr. Amy Compton-Phillips, Dr. Todd Zartoski, and Dr. Malin Shaw from Providence St. Joseph Health. And today, we're talking about research and clinical innovations to better treat patients. So if you have any questions throughout the show for any of our experts, please feel Feel free to submit them via our Twitter handle or our Facebook page. While we're live here today, we definitely want to hear from you. So we can be found on Twitter at PSJH and also on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health. And don't forget to use the hashtag Future of Health. That's hashtag Future of Health so we can find your questions and comments and we'll definitely be on the lookout for those throughout the show. So first, let's get it started by welcoming Amy Compton Phillips. She is the Executive Vice President and Chief Clinical Officer for Providence St. Joseph Health. Dr. Phillips, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Julie. I really appreciate the chance to be here today. Of course. So please, if you could illustrate a little bit about your background and tell us about the role that you have at Providence St. Joseph Health. Sure. I'm an internist by training and have been at Providence St. Joseph Health for three years now. Um, I joined uh, Providence St. Joseph from uh, Kaiser Permanente, where I was for 23 years uh, in a variety of roles, eventually um, leading the, uh, after being chief quality officer for the Kaiser Permanente National Organization. Um, and I came over to Providence St. Joseph, uh, recruited here by Rod Hockman, um, to, to really um, the mandate he put forward for us when he when he brought me in was that we really want to change healthcare. That our mission across Providence St. Joseph is is health for a better world. That we're here to make it so that every person um, has high available, high quality, accessible, affordable care, no matter where they are in the U.S. So uh, it's, it's it's a tall challenge, but it's one we're totally up for creating here. Absolutely. And I feel like you are already doing just that, changing the face of healthcare by being innovative and being a disruptor in the space and really just putting the patient first. At least that's what I've learned from hosting this show. How is PSJH leveraging real-time data and informatics to improve patient outcomes while also reducing care costs? Well, you know, we really took a step back and exactly to your point, um, thought about what is it that, that everybody wants out of healthcare? Um, well, patients want to get better. And how do they know? How do we know if they're better? Well, we ask them if they're better. We can measure a lot of things. You know, if, um, if you had diabetes, say, we would measure your blood sugar and your long-term blood sugar results and your cholesterol results. That doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you feel better, right? <laughs> whether or not you feel better is a subjective thing that we have to ask you. If you go in and get surgery, um, whether or not you're better after surgery is, again, um, that part of it is do you feel better. Part of it is did we cure your cancer or whatever the reason for surgery was, you know, make your hip better and that we replaced. Um, but so, so we thought about it and said, are we collecting the right information? And said, in order to, to know if patients are better, let's not only collect the clinical information but patient-reported outcomes. So that's one side. And then the other side of the equation is we um, – talked to docs and said, are you getting back the information to know whether or not the work that you're doing is the highest value work that you want to be doing? 
do you know whether or not you're making patients better at an affordable price? Because nobody comes to work to do the wrong thing, right? Nobody's trying to provide poor quality care at high cost. So, so we figured out what it is we need to know from patients, and we figured out what it is we need to know to give back to physicians to know if they're delivering that for patients. And by doing that, we created a really different analytic framework that allows us to provide the information clinicians need to be able to optimize the outcomes for the patients that they serve. Um, and it's been a real treat to roll out because it's been answering what, what our clinicians are asking for instead of docs pushing back on the data, which is kind of the, the gestalt that people have about docs and data. They've embraced it and they said, this is what we've been wanting to know. And thank you so much for helping us make our practice um, the practice we want it to be. Mm-hmm. And can you talk about value infrastructure. What exactly does value infrastructure mean and what can you share with us about that? Sure. Well, um, you know, there's there's a, a book that's now a classic um, that was written by Michael Porter at Harvard Business School um, that, that really t- attempts to define value in healthcare as outcomes that matter to patients over the cost of delivering those outcomes. Um, and so we've tried to solve for both the numerator and the denominator. Um, and then in order to, to know those outcomes, like I said, we had to, we had to ask. Um, and in order to know the costs, we had to measure. And we had to measure costs at a discrete level across our footprint um, that, that allows us to present information in a way that's clinically intuitive and makes a difference. Um, and so we put those two, two categories of information together in the same set of analytics that we call our value-oriented architecture. And it allows us to display high-level information so that clinicians know where they are on on that value plot, whether they are um, high quality and lower cost or not. Um, And then it allows them to drill into, okay, if they're not high quality, what are the areas that they could change to be high quality? If they are high cost, what are the areas that they could change that continue to provide high quality at a more affordable price? Because, again, they want to be part of the solution to the lack of affordability of healthcare, and this gives them the tools to, to do that. And I've also heard you talk about caring reliably for making improvements to outcomes that stick, outcomes that matter. Can you elaborate a little bit there? Absolutely. So we've known since, oh, is the early 2000s? it might have been actually right at 2000, the turn of the century, um, that the Institute of Medicine put out a report called Crossing the Quality Chasm. And it said that the gap between, the distance between what care is and what care should be wasn't a gap, it is a chasm. Um, That it was a huge uh, change. And that was the first report that started talking about the number of people that die because of healthcare, um, because of... of, um, uh, hospital-acquired infections or or medical misadventures. You know, you, you do the wrong thing to the wrong patient inadvertently. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it's such a high-risk field, um, we started learning from other high-reliability-type organizations, things like nuclear power plants and the nuclear navy, where um, um, very rarely do you have significant accidents. It's not never, but it's very rarely. And it's certainly a lot less often than in healthcare, which, um, which as, as many people have uh, been able to quantify, um, it's like one 
plane full, one 737 crashing a day in the U.S. is the number of people harmed in healthcare. Oh, gosh. Is that an so, alarming number It's a you? large number. Yeah, that, it that's is a large number. number. It absolutely is a large number, and it's, it's something we want to change. Yeah. And so the whole concept of high reliability came out of learning from other types, industries that are very highly reliable so that we can apply those same principles in healthcare. Um, we've adopted that high reliability principle within Providence St. Joseph across our footprint um, to be able to better execute on what we know um, in a way that allows us to do it reliably. And that includes things like allowing people at the front lines to speak up so that if there is a you know high-powered surgeon in the OR and a scrub tech sees something happen, mm-hmm. they can speak up and say, excuse me, doc, but uh, it's supposed to be the left leg, not the right leg, right? <gasps> oh, my gosh. So, <laughs> I know. But, but if you think about it, it's really, really difficult for people with no power to speak um, the truth to people with a lot of power. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine that anywhere in your life. It's just challenging. So, so we've had to do a lot of work to flatten that hierarchy, to help people understand how to speak up in a way that's heard, to make sure that, that we can reliably deliver on the things that we know how to do, or that we should know how to do. Sure. And, and how so is that received? Room. Oh my gosh, it's been wonderful across the enterprise, um, but it, but it's not intuitive because it tends to be a hierarchical industry mm-hmm. um, where where you know some people are the top of the food chain and other people aren't. Um, just just historically, it's the way it's been perceived, and so we've had to actually um, teach people to do what would inherently be obvious, and that speak up when you see something, learn from mistakes. Um, have regular briefings, uh, do things, and then debrief on them, um, making sure we treat each other with respect no matter where we are in the organization. So so just some really basic human behaviors. Um, mm-hmm. And because they are basic human behaviors, when we actually do them, it makes people like their job better. So by, <laughs> Imagine by that. focusing on caring reliably, exactly, exactly. Um, and by the way, we've adopted the caring reliably to care compassionately and caring um with with high value. So we've taken the same principles that speak to um, do the right thing and do the right thing the right way um, and broadening that out to include not only safety, but also the compassionate way we treat our patients and each other and also the value with which we provide our care. Mm -hmm. And you've said in other interviews that PSJH has assessed the key drivers of morbidity and mortality to determine where you need to invest to reduce disease. So how did you do that? And what were some of your findings there? Sure. Well, early on, in order to figure out what we needed to do, we didn't come in with a set recipe. We said we need to learn what it is at Providence St. Joseph Health that that we do that we need to change to do it better. And so we did um, an assessment. Every one of our hospitals, our ambulatory sites, did an assessment of of what are the last 50 people that they've harmed. And again, none of it intentional, but healthcare is a dangerous field. Mm-hmm. So um, did that assessment, and that's how we learned um, what were the areas that we really needed to focus on. And much of it wasn't just on what we do, but how we do it. So what are the behaviors? What are the tones? Um, and then also, what are the tools? And so it's really been a cultural shift for us to change those fundamental drivers of, of what can lead to 
harm and risk. I read an interview recently where you talked about transparency being the key to consumers and that that transparency allows patients to see how people with similar illnesses and treatments are responding. So how do patients access that information? How do they get to see that, for lack of a better term, transparency? And what is what do you mean when you talk about a PPC bundle, if you could explain that? Well, I think of transparency um, in the same way, and I should remember which of the Supreme Court justices that said this, I think it's Brandeis, uh, but that sunshine is the best disinfectant. Um, you know, for years, um, lawyers in healthcare have been been very leery of, of um, exposing under the covers the things that can go wrong in healthcare because they're worried about the fear of litigation. But without us talking about it and dealing with it, we can't change things. Um, and so transparency has been very helpful. And when we, when we um, uh, acknowledge and disclose and apologize to patients early on, if something does go not the way that it was planned to, um, patients, patients appreciate understanding and will work with us to help it never happen again. Uh, and so, so it's been, it's been a huge shift change in healthcare for us to actually embrace um, transparency when things go wrong. And what we're very much working into is not only transparency when things go wrong, but transparency when things go right. Um, that how do we help people um, understand what's important to them and then find the right provider and right place to go because they're making educated decisions based on what's important to them. Um, and so we're working on building the tools to do that. Healthcare has some of that online now, um, but they do it in kind of these aggregated star ratings, which which may or may not be the most important. In fact, there's this wonderful article in this week's New England Journal about how you can have personalized star ratings, um, weighting the, the components of the stars on things that matter to you. Um, so that if I care more about service than I care about um, uh, timely discharges, for example, I can I can choose a hospital that's going to treat me well more than one that's going to get me out of the hospital sooner. Um, and so, so um, we are working hard to figure out how to how to enable people to have the best information they can. Um, you know, they can always go on to Yelp and always go on to Google, but but what tends to be there is all about service um, because people put ratings based on how they're treated, which is great, but they also probably want to know not only how they're treated, but what are the cancer cure rates of that place, or what are the um, physician skills of that procedure, and how many have they done? Sure. What is the success rate? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's what we're working hard to figure out. How do we how do we make that information visible in a way that's meaningful to the to the people who use our care? Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but I do want to continue our conversation because this is absolutely fascinating and I have so many more questions for you, Dr. Amy Compton-Phillips. We will be right back. You're listening to Dash Radio. I'll tell you a story before it tells itself. I lay out all my reasons. You say that I need help. We all got They got their hands at my neck this time 
Listening to Dash Radio, this is Future of Health, and we are continuing the conversation with Dr. Amy Compton Phillips. Now, Dr. Compton Phillips, tell me, talk about how physicians today have to be data scientists as well as clinical experts. Yeah, what a great question. Um, you know, something something that's been true over the evolution of medical care is we have been learning over the years how to ever better use data and information. Um, if you think about it, back in the in the days of leeches and bleeding, and um, we, we, we did treatments based on what we thought based on theory, but we never measured the impact, right? So, so we did things for a long time that didn't work because we just didn't sort out how to measure and change what did work. That changed in the early 1900s. There was something called the Flexner Report that said really... Um, medicine ought to be based in science and we need to learn how to use information. And we started doing really impactful things like double-blind randomized controlled trials and and um, putting uh, medical students through rigorous education, making sure they had knowledge. And um, But we still didn't get great feedback on outcomes. 
with the advent of the computer age, we've been able to actually start collecting a much richer set of information than we've had in the past. Um, and that means that, that we, we, you know, the burden has been that doctors have been putting information into electronic medical records now for, you know, depending on where you're based, uh, for the past decade. Um, so, so some of us feel like um, computer entry technicians at times, but, mm-hmm. but it really is the way of the future. So we're going to figure that out. But, so we're putting data in differently. But even more impactfully, the benefit of us typing things in rather than writing the way the, those of us trained in the old school methods used to do um, is that now we have this unbelievably rich set of information that can allow us to understand in much more real time the impact of our treatments and what we're doing. And it's what's really contributed to the explosion of information that's out there. Of course, when there's an explosion of information out there, um, I should remember off the top of my head, it's something like 2,000 articles are published today. It's, it's, it's an absurd amount of information in the medical literature. We have to have a way to curate that information and get it back to us in a real time. Um, to make it worthwhile for the patients that we serve. And so so um, one of the key fundamental issues for clinicians now is is how do we not just learn our craft, but continuously hone our craft based on the latest and greatest information that comes in, which is why we at Providence St. Joseph Health have been bringing in our brilliant data scientists and people that combine the skills of medicine and analytics together um, to help us figure that out. How do we make the knowledge that's out there and that's expanding beyond our ability to, to read, um, you know, as it comes in the New England Journal in our mailbox once a week? Mm-hmm. Um, it's now infinitely vaster than that. How do, we, how do we start translating that huge array of information into usable data for one physician at the bedside of one patient? And that's what data science helps us do. Well, speaking of data science, I know that you also work with other data providers like, for instance, prisons or police departments and schools to leverage shared knowledge in your planning. So can you talk a little bit about that and what it is exactly that you derive from those other institutions? Absolutely. Well, um, again, part of the learning in the past 20 years, and and honestly, if anybody sat down and thought about this, they would totally come up with this on their own, but it's always good to have data that proves uh, what's in- intuitive, is that um, the social determinants of one's life have a huge impact on one's health, and in fact, um, a larger impact than the medical care that a person receives. So education, uh, socioeconomic status, um, adverse events when as a child, um, all of those impact the, the longevity and health outcomes for an individual. And so as we think about moving towards better health for populations that we serve, um, we have to understand the social impacts of a community um, to be able to, to design systems of care that address them. And we do that through using something called a community health needs assessment, um, and the short form is CHNA. But we use that community health needs assessment to understand what are the educational assets, what is the, the risk of the community that's been in prison, um, what is the access to fresh fruit and vegetables um, in the neighborhood, um, what is the, the social burden of abuse and neglect for children in that community. 
And then by looking at that, we can design solutions that really are tailor-made to meet the needs of that community. Because it turns out that solutions that work in uh, downtown Beverly Hills may not be the right solutions that work in downtown Compton. Um, And it just depends on on the community that you're working with. Absolutely. And you've said that the most underutilized person in healthcare is the patient. I love that. What does that mean exactly? What did you mean by saying that? And how does that change the work that you do? I mean, I know already just from everything you've said, PSJH always wants to put the patient first and is absolutely committed to as positive as possible of an outcome. But how is the patient underutilized and how and why are they the most important person in healthcare? Yeah, um, the, the short form of the answer, I'm going to give you two forms of the answer. The short form is that um, when I went through medical school and I, um, you know, was learning to be a, a doctor, we did things to patients. Um, um, now, um, much more uh, on a regular basis and with concerted effort, we are very much working to do things with patients um, organized around their goals, values, and beliefs, which means that they really need to be driving the treatment and determining what is right for them, you know, out of the incredible range of possibilities, what's the right right for them. Um, the long form of that answer is is um, an anecdote told uh, to me by, by a friend of mine, Paul Wallace, um, who who describes it as as the evolution of of knowledge. Um, and if you kind of think before the printing press was made, the only people that had the book, the only people that held medical knowledge were the, the, um, incredibly powerful instructors at the medical school. They had the book, they had the knowledge, they, they had it all. And the, the students could learn from, from the instructor. Um, and then came the printing press. And then all of a sudden, all the students got the book. They got the knowledge. They got to understand what was happening and and really start controlling. And they would dole it out in bits and pieces as, as on an as-needed basis to, to patients, to people receiving their care. And now in this era, um, with the advent of knowledge, um, you know, in the palm of your hand, you have more information than the library at Alexandria in ancient times, um, that... that um, now everybody has the knowledge, right? That that we've distributed knowledge everywhere. So knowledge is not the sine qua non of medicine anymore. Um, everybody's got knowledge. What doctors do is they curate and figure out what bits of knowledge and what what how does that knowledge affect the treatment for that individual, and they start applying that knowledge. But you can't apply that knowledge the same to every single human being because some people value something over something else, mm-hmm. and that's why. That's why it's with patients. And by the way, um, a patient on average uh, spends about two hours a year in a doctor's office, and they spend um, over 6,000 hours a year at home. Um, who's really providing the care for them? It's, it's themselves, right. <laughs> themselves and their family. Um, and so as we think about how to do care with patients, we really have to understand the context of what they want to do and what they're capable of doing and what they're going to do because what we're doing in medicine is supporting them. So, so that is in some total the mm-hmm. version of why I think patients are, are, um, are really 
the key drivers and the key providers of medical care in the country, and we do our best to support them. Sure, and every patient is different. Well, Dr. Amy Compton-Phillips, thank you so much for joining us. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, talking much more research and clinical innovations. Dash Radio. Welcome back to Future of Health. Our topic today is research and clinical innovations. And now joining us, we are so glad to have him here, Dr. Todd Zartoski. He is the Chief Executive Telehealth and Chief Medical Technology Officer for Providence St. Joseph Health. Dr. Todd, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Julie. So can you you illustrate um, your role for us with Providence St. Joseph Health? Sure. So I have a, a couple different roles, as as the titles uh, indicated. Um, as chief executive of telehealth, I oversee uh, all of our telehealth offerings. And for those folks that aren't familiar with telehealth, essentially it's um, 
we define it as uh, virtual visits between a provider and a patient, um, usually happening on secure uh, audiovisual uh, technology. Could be with phone, could be a tablet device, could be a, a computer. But any type of virtual visit that we conduct uh, between a patient and a provider, uh, we classify as telehealth. And so uh, I oversee that for the Providence St. Joseph uh, Enterprise. How long has telehealth been in use with PSJH? Yeah, so our roots go back all the way to 2004 uh, when we launched tele-ICU, our first tele-ICU offering in the intensive care unit where we have some uh, centralized providers overseeing patients in many different uh, hospital beds. Um, but really things took off around 2007, 2008 when we uh, developed uh, telestroke networks. Um, much like other parts of the country, telestroke really uh, took off around that period and has grown tremendously over the last decade or so. And, and so we've seen a pretty rapid growth of, of telehealth offerings both in depth of the number of places that we're serving, as well as breadth of services uh, over the last uh, 10 years. Wow. So over the last 10 years, you've seen a lot of innovation and you've seen it really kind of come into play, I'm sure. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting when we started in in the early days, what I call the early days, 2007, which, of course, is when, you know, the first iPhone was introduced. So it wasn't, wasn't that long ago, but... Um, the technology was was a real barrier at, at times. The reliability of it, and and making you know most people didn't have smartphones; they didn't exist yet, right? So, um, reaching out to a consumer or to a patient directly was was unheard of at that point, or would be very uh, challenging. So that's probably the biggest change: is everyone's carrying a computer in their pocket now, uh, generally, and, and or has access to one, and and so that piece has really uh, changed. And also in the hospital setting, in some of our facilities, whether it be clinic, hospital, skilled nursing facilities, we now have better networks and better infrastructure to be able to deliver this kind of service virtually. Mm -hmm. Well, you recently presented a virtual health system at ATA 18 to showcase the PSJH platform of telehealth. So can you tell a little bit about what it was that you shared there? Yeah, there, there are a couple of things. So one is, um, you know, I mentioned the roots or the background of our telehealth offering. And um, interestingly, being part of a large evolving health system, um, our organization looks quite a bit different today in 2018 than, than what it did in 2007. And so um, with that evolution and growth in the number of hospitals that we now have in our ecosystem, uh, I think it's 51 total and over 800 clinics uh, across uh, seven states. Um, we made the decision about a year and a half ago that, gosh, we really should probably um, look at how we can centralize some of these functions so that we can serve more patients and move faster to adopt this technology and these virtual services. So we spent a lot of time um, putting together a, a, a team that allows us to to do that um, across uh, basically the Western United States. And, and that was a large portion of what we shared is how you can take a successful program in one area or one region um, and take it and scale it or spread it across numerous hospitals, multiple states, that type of thing. So um, looking at our enterprise uh, model and, and, and how we've adapted that was, was the focus of 
of that uh, uh, presentation. The other thing that we um, um, presented on was a, a patient engagement center. So uh, we have essentially a concierge service for patients. Um, they, they often don't know how to navigate um, the healthcare system. They'll maybe get a new diagnosis or get um, new information or they have a symptom that they're concerned about. And uh, if they can't reach their primary care provider quickly, they'll go online and search for uh, search for help. And so we've developed um, a, a model where we can have folks call in to our patient engagement center and get patient, um, get information, um, get tied to a particular type of provider across our uh, across our ecosystem. So that has been um, by standardizing that, and again scaling it across the the size of our organization. That has been a a big win for our patients to be able to um, help them navigate our <laughs> sometimes very complex health system. Is that program specific to PSJH? Uh, it is, yeah, and and a lot of other health systems and hospitals um, ha- have uh, either tried or or have stood up similar offerings. Um, I think what's unique about this is the is the technology that's built into it. It has the ability to, um, you know, um, pull data very quickly on thousands and thousands of providers that we have in our ecosystem, so that if you call up and say, "Hey, I have migraine headaches and I live in Western Montana," um, we can in seconds tell you which providers we have there and who's accepting new patients and 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 even. And, um, you know, tie you to or refer you to um, the, the local uh, resources based on your zip code or location. So it's it's um, it's pretty cool, uh, and and it's evolving as we layer on things like uh, AI to to be able to uh, make it more user friendly for both our our call center agents as well as our patients. And I'm sure that there's an entire generation that is very grateful for that interaction versus having to find all of that information online, which is very static. Absolutely. So the the you know it's interesting. It is a type of service that really transcends generations. I think um, both younger folks and and uh, older patients uh, often need a hand. And mm-hmm. and of course, our our, our younger uh, uh, patients often want to have self service, and they're so used to doing everything themselves on their phone. So we do have some of those options as well with our digital offerings to be able to schedule your own appointment and obtain information. But sometimes all the information you need isn't there, and having a white glove concierge service available uh, is super helpful. Absolutely. Also, without draining your staff and the bandwidth and energy (laughs) of having to have a call center. Tell me how telehealth also fits into your behavioral health programs as well. Yeah, good question. So um, behavioral health is a huge um, focus for us. And um, you may have heard uh, earlier, I don't know if, if Dr. Compton Phillips talked about it, but, um, you know, uh, mental health is, is a commitment that our organization is, um, has made to um, um, moving the needle and improving um, mental health in the communities that we serve. Um, and that was part of the commitment that Providence and St. Joseph had as we as we came together as a new organization. And telehealth is no different. So we we have uh, embraced that um, not just for that reason, but because it's the right thing to do for the communities we serve. Many of the hospitals that we serve don't have 
enough mental health experts, either um, counselors, social workers, or uh, psychiatrists. And so we stood up a telepsychiatry program um, that, uh, similar to our other tele-offerings, is across multiple states, multiple facilities, um, using a centralized panel of providers that can beam in any time to a hospital or a ward or an ER uh, and help uh, someone who who needs to see a psychiatrist. Um, so, so that's been. Um, it, it's not our largest program yet. Our telestroke program is is still larger, but in terms of the trajectory and the growth of it, it will surpass telestroke probably by the end of this year or early next year. It's our fastest growing program by far. Wow. Are those the most common kinds of conditions that you're seeing through telehealth, or are there others that are a little more pervasive? Yeah, good, good question. We, we've um, so we've actually built uh, close to sixty different clinical services that can be delivered by telehealth, and many of those are done in local clinical settings, either in a hospital or clinic to clinic kind of thing or direct to consumer where we have a, a group of providers that are passionate about uh, providing the service to the, the patients they serve. Um, and so we've been thoughtful about where we put our resources because you can't do everything all at once. And so we have spread or scaled, as I mentioned, across our whole enterprise uh, a handful of services. Telepsychiatry is one of them. Telestroke uh, is another, where we see patients who are who are having stroke symptoms in the ER. Um, and our you know our average response rate for that is is two minutes and fifteen seconds from the time uh, we are called till we get a neurologist on the phone, twenty four hours a day at at um, at uh, about a hundred hospitals. Um, and so um, those are our biggest uh, service lines. We also have a telehospitalist program where um, we serve small, tends to be smaller hospitals who at night may not have a hospitalist or a physician in the hospital to admit patients and to take cross-cover calls from nurses on, on hospitalized patients at night. That's been a huge win for, for some of our, our smaller hospitals to really help them out when they're resource-constrained uh, after hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but is that also a bit of a concern? Yeah. Because when you talk about, I mean, I, I can't imagine anything scarier than being a patient who needs to be seen and I go to a smaller hospital and there's nobody there except for maybe a screen. So that just sounds a little scary. Have there been any concerns about the lack of human interaction, human touch when it comes to virtual healthcare? I mean, virtual healthcare, everything we're talking about is so positive and there are so many positives, but have there been any detractors from that that you've seen? Yeah, good question. Just like any change, healthcare is incredibly uh, resistant to change. And so developing new programs and, and um, particularly when you're doing more complex things like hospital medicine, where you're not just beaming in and doing a consult, but you're actually evaluating a patient, uh, writing admission orders, writing a, a, a history and physical so that they can be safely admitted to the hospital on the correct care pathway. Um, and so we put a lot of thought into how we built that. And um, to answer your your question, there's a lot of folks that were that, that especially in the early days were very hesitant or or concerned about that. 
And so um, the way I describe it is we kind of over-engineered it or overbuilt it to some degree to, to make sure that we were doing it safely. And we have seven years of experience now um, to, to, to lean upon to show that it is safe, it is effective. And in, in fact, in many cases, we're providing better care than what was there before because there just simply wasn't a provider uh, uh, available. Um, and so one of the key points to being able to do it safely is we developed a training program for what we call telepresenters. And this is a nurse, typically a nurse. It doesn't have to be a nurse, but it's typically a nurse on the other end who's in the room with the patient. And that nurse uh, is not trained to be a physician. They're not there to replace the physician, but they're, they're the physician's hands, if you will, in the room. They help facilitate a thorough examination, make sure that the camera is positioned correctly. They actually can put a stethoscope on the patient's heart or lungs or abdomen so that the doctor can listen remotely for um, uh, heart sounds and, and, and lungs and, and things like that. And so, so they they are, they are the, that personal touch to make sure the patient doesn't feel like they're just talking to a robot. And, and I think that without that, there would, there would be a lot of limitations as to what we could do. Uh, I personally feel that it's necessary to have that for, for safety reasons and for quality reasons. So, so we put a lot of time and energy into training those nurses to make sure they can be that extension of the physician and that presence in the room with the patient. Well, that's good makes it seem a little less 2001. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue the conversation about research and clinical innovations and really the future of healthcare technology. We'll be right back.
Topic of the day, research and clinical innovations. And we're here with Dr. Todd Zartoski. Dr. Todd, you've mentioned that at PSJH, you want to balance standardization with local autonomy. So what exactly does that mean and how do you do that in reality? Yeah, great, great question. So two, two ways. It, what, it, what it actually means is that um, we don't want it to be so... Um, Sort of corporate that that folks lose the practice, uh, the ability to practice medicine in their own way, um, uh, the way they were trained, or or what works best for the community they're serving. So the way we've gone about that is uh, through a model that we call shared governance, and we bring together stakeholders from across the organization, uh, clinicians, managers, operators, to make sure that. Um, everyone's voice is heard, and that we can continue to um, customize things for for the different environments we serve. And as a reminder, Providence St. Joseph spans from Alaska to Montana to, to Southern California over to Texas and into the Pacific Northwest. And all of those ecosystems are, are different and present different challenges. So we want to try to make sure that we're meeting the needs of the communities we serve. And, and that's how we do that is bringing those stakeholders together. The second thing we do is we've developed a toolbox, basically a roadmap or a playbook that folks can use for self-service so that if they want to stand up a telehealth program for um, a niche area and they're in their community, they can do it very quickly and we make sure that it's done safely and securely and that the technology is is all there in the background so that it can happen seamlessly. Do you anticipate more care services to be delivered virtually in the future? Are we going to see less human interaction? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think there'll be more um, offerings. 
it's not to replace the human interaction necessarily. It's to actually augment or supplement it. Um, I think we're just getting started in this field. I think there's a lot more that you'll see coming down the pipe. And in particular, um, the areas that we're excited about and looking at are things like home monitoring. So going into people's homes and helping them um, where they live and, and keeping them healthy before they have to come to the ER or the hospital uh, because their, you know, their, their congestive heart failure is, has gotten out of control or their diabetes or, or what have you. So that's a big area. And then other areas like clinics and skilled nursing facilities and rehab facilities, there's a ton of opportunities for us to leverage this technology and this type of virtual care um, most of our focus has been in the acute space, in the ICU, in the ER, those types of things, just because there's a big demand there and, um, and there's a shortage of physicians, and that shortage is expected to get worse. So we think that continuing to leverage these types of um, scalable solutions of clinical service is only going to grow. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time and for joining us here today and talking about research and clinical innovations and the future of healthcare. Dr. Todd Zartoski, we appreciate your time. Thank you. It is my pleasure to now welcome to the show. He is the chief informatics engineer for Providence St. Joseph Health, where he works to achieve the value of the electronic health record through optimization and innovation. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Malin Shaw. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So please tell us a little bit about your role and what it is exactly that you do with PSJH. Yeah, I have a really unique role at um, PSJ. Um, my title is Chief Informatics Engineer, and that's not a title you're going to hear uh, really at any other health system. I, I report up into our Chief Medical Information Officer but with my background as both a physician and a computer scientist and an engineer, we were able to create this position um, where I get to kind of focus on bringing engineering principles, both software design and usability, and clinical principles of being a physician um, to, to, to light and uh, to bear um, for, um, you know, driving our, our goal forward. And the work that you do at PSJH, how is that different from other healthcare systems? I know you said that your role doesn't really exist anywhere else but PSJH. Why is it specific to PSJH? Yeah, I, I think it's um, really a, a, a representation of uh, Providence and St. Joseph's um, commitment to our uh, electronic tools and how we're going to use those tools to drive care. Um, not every health system um, can uh, make a specific role that's dedicated to um, usability and to being able to uh, design tools to, to achieve outcomes. Um, a lot of times you're at the mercy of vendors or you have people who are sort of jacks of all um, but can't be experts at, at any one thing. We were re really able to um, you know, carve out some time uh, in, in my role to, to kind of bridge these two worlds together. Um, most health systems you'll find nowadays have a chief medical information officer or a chief health information officer, and we have those two. Um, but those roles can, can span the gamut of how do you roll out a new tool um, to um, all sorts of operational concerns on, on just allowing um, physicians and clinicians to do their work every day. 
I get to really focus on design and optimization and really trying to achieve the value out of these really substantial IT investments we've made. Mm -hmm. Well, we're talking about data. And when you turn on the news currently, I mean, it's like you hear the word data and breach together. And it's affected Americans and people all over the world, globally, financially, personally, politically. How do you think that data has affected the healthcare sector? And do you think it has the potential to become a game changer for healthcare? Oh, definitely. I think it, it's already became, become a, a game changer. Um, you know, over the last oh, 10 to 15 years, um, we've seen the digitization of healthcare overall. And a lot of that was driven um, by government incentives um, and healthcare has kind of reluctantly moved forward in the information technology sector. But I think that um, we're now through the uh, kind of the bumpiest parts of just getting live on computer systems, which, you know, sounds crazy in 2018 that that, that was our, our most recent challenge. But we're, what we're really trying to do now is kind of get the value out of the data. And when I say get the value out of the data, what I mean is um, now that we have these systems in place, now that we are at the clinician's fingertips when they are at the bedside, when they're seeing patients, and now that we have all this data um, about our patients, we're really starting to find trends. We're trying to find ways to um, use those trends to inform our decision-making. We spend a lot of time um, looking at how to uh, suss through this mountain of data. One of the biggest problems we have in healthcare now that we have all this electronic um, medical records and data is how do you actually bring all that data to bear? It's information overload for everybody. And, you know, the doc in the clinic or, or at your bedside doesn't necessarily, you know, can't necessarily see everything all at the same time. So our job has been to cull through that data, present just the right information at the right moment in time, and then to use um, analytics and other uh, decision support tools to uh, make sense of the data for the clinician and ultimately to give them advice about, you know, what's the best care for the patient in front of me. So I think data absolutely has been um, a game changer, but I think it's the, the best is yet to come in that area. Um, with regards to data security, you know, that's always a concern uh, of ours. And it's always this um, gap between uh, security of, uh, and per of personal information of patients but enough um, access to that information to be able to really make the best decisions. And we're constantly uh, balancing those. What's started to make that um, even more challenging is uh, the push that our patients have made as well as the government's made to opening up all of our data structures so that uh, a patient can choose a different app, for example, to um, manage their diabetes or to manage uh, their health information. You know, they can log onto their iPhone phone and use Apple Health Kit to see their record. Those are creating even newer problems or newer opportunities and problems uh, in terms of patients accessing this data. So help, having us to figure out how to safeguard information, safeguard the patients, but still allow that open access and freedom of choice. Right. How do you keep it safe, but also make it accessible for exactly. the, the, just for the people who need the information, not for anyone else? There seems to be a huge push into the health and wellness space to help patients take control of their own health. Like we said, using those apps and the devices, as you said, the Apple Healthcare and kind of being able to access the things you need to access personally. Also, Fitbit is a good example. How does PSJH see these fitting into their strategy? 
Yeah, it's, it's a great point. We, um, we have our health 2.0 strategy at Providence, um, St. Joseph that, uh, really is, um, aimed at, at starting to meet patients where they are. So trying to expand our, um, care of patients and our, our, our ability to drive health and wellness beyond the four walls of the hospital. And, um, these apps, um, of, uh, and, and devices that can engage patients where they're at are really a big part of that strategy. Um, I think there's a couple different uh, ways to kind of to, to look at these. On the one hand, there's this just enormous opportunity to, um, for example, track a patient's behavior and then to use that data to help um, help them change their behavior, whether they're trying to lose weight, whether they're trying to be more active, whether they want to uh, manage their depression. There's a lot of apps out there uh, that gather a lot of uh, real-time data about these patients. But there's also some, you know, snake oil out there. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, companies that are making claims uh, without a lot of evidence to back them up. Um, and then there's some that are, are making claims with great evidence. And so part of what we're seeing is uh, and thinking about is how do we help our patients, you know, cut the wheat from the chaff there? How do they find the, um, you know, the, the apps that are really going to apply to them that are going to be best for them? And um, to that end, we've actually um, incubated a company here at Providence and, and uh, invested in uh, them as we've rolled them out called Zelf that actually brings the whole space of patient engagement apps, whether they're, like you said, Fitbit or um, uh, weight loss apps or diabetes management apps, depression apps, all sorts of stuff. It brings them within our within our um, electronic health records so that we can have our physicians prescribe them. What that allows us to do is create a formulary, just like you have a formulary for the best meds for a particular condition. We're, we're starting to create a formulary of the best apps that will help our patients. And in the clinical encounter, when you're seeing your physician, when you're seeing your care team, they can suggest apps directly in our electronic health record, prescribe those apps, um, and you, you get them, you know, delivered directly to your phone or your device to, to interact with. So we feel like what we're trying to do is bridge this, um, this, this uh, divide between sort of the healthcare system and, and maybe what you would call health 1.0 and the various apps and services that our patients can engage in and what you might call health 2.0 and really see ourselves as experts in that area to um, help our, our patients, you know, continually improve their care and not when they're, you know, seeing their doctor every few months. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that's obviously a big goal of PSJH and also to put the, the care and the accessibility in the patient's hands as well to empower the patient. Absolutely. How has PSJH also been able to use innovation in other ways to achieve its clinical goals? Yeah, we, I feel really fortunate um, to be a member of this team um, because we really do put a lot of emphasis on innovating um, and, and thinking about how we can think differently to achieve clinical goals. You know, healthcare has this last mile problem. It's, it's a well-advertised um, well problem, I guess, where we may know exactly what the right thing to do for the patient is. There may be new research uh, that say this is the best care for a particular condition. And yet it takes a long time for us to get that care to the bedside, to actually change um, how our clinicians are taking care of patients. And so our job um, is to figure out how to bridge that last mile uh, as effectively as possible. And so um, we use innovation in kind of a couple different ways. On the one side, we have 
what I call inside innovation. Um, and this is the innovation that I, I really lead at, at the company, which is where we take the tools that we already own. Uh, for example, our electronic health record. And we think about how to use them creatively to, to meet these um, objectives. You know, for example, we've built um, entire um, frameworks inside of our um, health record that uh, show information differently um, depending on the case that's in front of them. These are things that, you know, our vendors, uh, the healthcare, excuse me, the, um, the health IT vendors may or may not be focused on, but it allows us to be really nimble and to define a clinical condition and define the best way to care for that and bring that all the way to the bedside. At PSJ, we also um, have sort of a separate approach to innovation, or not separate, but a, a, the other half of the coin um, for innovation, where uh, we're looking at innovating outside of the electronic health record. So these are our electronic tools that we can use to, again, drive the best patient care, but maybe not um, thinking about it from the context of at the bedside. These are things like these apps and services we talked about for patients, but also things like um, advanced analytics that can use machine learning and predictive analytics to um, identify some of the highest risk patients and allow us to reach out to those patients in advance um, and do those kinds of things. So we've got innovation kind of inside and outside. So we're really trying to, to, to cover the gamut um, all in the, in the name of really trying to, to get the best care, what, what we know is the best evidence for the best care, and make that a reality for our patients and not something that's just sitting in the research literature uh, gathering dust. I see. Well, if you could look into your crystal ball, and my last question for you, if you could make a prediction with all of the information that you have and all of your expertise when it comes to the future of health and just the future of technology as it pertains to health, where are we going to be 20 years from now? Are we going to have doctors in hospitals or is everything going to be automated? Everything's going to be accessible via a device in our pockets or on a touch screen. How much, if you could even just give us a percentage wise, how much of healthcare is going to be digitized and, and sort of accessible via technology? How much technology are we going to see in hospitals? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if we do our job right, hospitals are going to I do something they haven't done in 100 years, which is they're going to get smaller instead of continuing to get bigger. Um, if we do our job right, we're going to be focused on health and wellness. In terms of um, you know how much is going to be digitized, honestly, I think it's going to be a complete. You're not even going to recognize the um, healthcare interaction in the future. You'll be interacting with with your health system without necessarily even know it, knowing it. Um, I, the goal is to, again, be embedded in the lives of our patients in a way that allows them to make healthy choices. And so whether that's uh, getting a text message to remind you to take a medication, or when you do have to see a physician, not having the physician stuck behind a computer screen, but instead having, you know, maybe there's an ambient um, listener that's listening to the conversation between your doctor and you, automatically creating prescriptions, automatically, uh, uh, you know, making sure that the right things are happening without us having to punch up keys and click on mouses and even pull out our devices. It's really going to, it's going to be a more, um, maybe it's a little bit scary to think about, but honestly, I think it's going to be more of a 360 experience where, you know, we're in each decision we make, we're gathering data and, and finding ways to influence patients and, and people to, just make better decisions because, frankly, prevention of disease and making the right choices um, around your own health and wellness are what keep you out of hospitals. And that's going to be our real goal is reducing the burden of chronic disease, not necessarily constantly adding more complexity to treat chronic disease. 
let's reduce the incidence. And I think that's what digitization is going to uh, bring to us. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your time, Dr. Malin Shah. We appreciate it. If any of our listeners would like more information on the future of health, you can check out future.psjhealth.org. And you can also access Providence St. Joseph Health on social media at PSJH. Well, I just want to thank all of our contributors to our show today, Dr. Amy, Dr. Todd, and Dr. Mullen for joining us. Thank you for your time. And thank you everyone for listening. We always appreciate it. And we look forward to a future topic with more wonderful experts from Providence St. Joseph Health. Make sure to follow us, Providence St. Joseph Health, on social media at PSJH on Twitter and Instagram and Providence St. Joseph Health on Facebook. And if you missed any part of the show, you can always replay it on Dash Radio. I'm Julie Alexandria. Thanks for listening, everyone.